Please, brothers and sisters, turn with me in your Bibles to our text this morning, which comes from the book of Revelation. As we continue our week-by-week study, we'll be looking at chapter 12 this morning in verses 7 to 12. So, Revelation chapter 12 and verses 7 to 12. Revelation chapter 12 and verses 7 to 12. Please, brothers and sisters, and hear with me the inspired and the inerrant word of our God. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and His angels were thrown down with Him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of the brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they have loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, as you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Thus far is a reading of God's Word. Well, brothers and sisters, if we think back throughout the course of our lives, we can probably think about a few events that we would consider to be major turning points in our lives. For all Christians here today, we have one in common, well, there are many, but just here's just one of many. And that is our regeneration. In our regeneration, we have been quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit. And in that, we were passive. But it enabled us then to answer the call of God and embrace the grace offered. And in light of that, what has happened? Our lives have changed. Right? What we live for has changed. How we live our day-to-day lives has changed. For others here, there are, there are many more events in your life that have taken place that have probably been major turning points for you in your life. Uh, perhaps when you were first married or when you had your first child for the husbands here, it was a major turning point because maybe you made a, a career change and you went off to some other career you didn't think that you were ever going to do because you knew now you had to support a family. For others, the unexpected death of someone close to them can be a major turning point in one's life. You oftentimes hear that when someone dies unexpectedly, uh, moving forward, what, what someone does then is they always say, I never let my loved one leave without kind of giving them a hug and a kiss and, and making sure I tell them how much I love them because you never know when you will see them again or if you will ever see them again. For younger people, graduation from high school or from college is a major event in your life, a great turning point 
in the life of a young adult because that means now you've got to go out into the world and you have to make something of yourself in this life. And we remember these, these major turning points in our lives because they are, they are few, they are occasional, but with them they bring sweeping ramifications. Right? They bring permanent change in our lives in how we think, in how we speak, in how we act, in, in, in how we spend our time throughout the course of our life. They are life-altering and, and life-shifting events that take place. Well, in our text last week, and in our text this week, we see a, a great turning point in a major event that takes place in this battle between Christ and the devil that has sweeping ramifications both in heaven and on earth and amongst God's people here on the earth. And what is that event? That event is the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and along with it, His resurrection and ascension. But it's on the cross that Christ defeats the devil. And this now becomes a major turning point in that battle that has been taking place for thousands of years. And although that battle is not completely ended, that major event, the the cross, has ensured that God's victory in Christ is also the church's victory. Right? It is that, that cross event that also enacted then for us a major change in what Satan now is permitted to do to Christ's bride. Right here, herein then lies another reason why last week we seen the devil so intent on devouring the child that we read about last week in verses one to six. Right? Why he tried to destroy Seth's line by having it commingle with the line of Cain. Right? Why the, the devil was behind trying to destroy the descendants of Jacob. Why the devil was behind trying to have Saul destroy David. Why the devil was behind Herod trying to destroy Christ as he is born. Why the devil would not let up and try to tempt Jesus in the wilderness and try to destroy Jesus and devour the child through Judas and ultimately try to devour him upon the cross. All of this is in an attempt of Satan to save himself. Right? He wants to save his kingdom. He wants to save his power. He wants to save his place in the world. This is why when Peter attempts to convince Christ to not continue his journey to Jerusalem unto death, Jesus says what? Get behind me, Satan. Right? For any attempt to stop the crucifixion is devilish in nature. But Satan in his efforts has failed. And instead of the cross being the defeat of Christ, it is the victory of Christ. And now, brothers and sisters, what we see in our text today is the great effects that this victory now has upon the people of God. That is what we see today. Right? In that cross event, what we see in our text is the great effect, the great ramifications that it has in our lives today. And so we want to look at the sweeping consequences of this great turning point in history, the cross. And we're going to do so under three points this morning. And the three points are this. The first is, Satan is thrown down from heaven. This is the first consequence of the cross event. Satan is thrown down from heaven. 
Our second point then is the kingdom of Christ is inaugurated. The kingdom of Christ is inaugurated. And the third point is that it results in heavenly celebration and earthly battles. Right? That cross event results in heavenly celebration and earthly battles. And so point number one, Satan is thrown down from heaven. Now what we need to see is that our text today is just a continuation right, of, of where we last left off last week. Right? It's just a continuation. In, in verse 3 of chapter 12, we read, And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great dragon. And now in verses 7 to 12, what we are reading is a, is a narration of this dragon's defeat. Right? That is what we see in verses 7 to verse 12. Only now what we see in our text today is the heavenly counterpart to what took place on earth that we read about in verses 1 to 6. Right? Today as we read, this is the heavenly counterpart to what took place on earth that was described for us last week in our text. Now immediately we are introduced to who? In verse 7, we are immediately introduced to the, Michael, to the angel Michael. Now we know of this angel Michael from the book of Daniel. Right? And so what do we have to do? Right? What have we been doing throughout the course of our study? As the book of Revelation is a divine commentary of the Old Testament. We go back to the Old Testament and we have to see who is this Michael? What is Michael's purpose to help us understand what Michael is being, or why Michael is being referenced in our text here today? And so I'd ask, brothers and sisters, that you turn with me back then uh, to the book of Daniel, and in particular, chapter 10 in the book of Daniel. And what we're going to see is that, is that Michael is closely associated with the Son of Man in the book of Daniel, and the Son of Man is Christ. Now there are some people, you get this with like Seventh-day Adventists, right, who believe that, that Michael is Christ. But I point us back to the book of Daniel, and, and in particular, chapter 10, because we see here that they are not the same person, although closely associated. And why is that? It's because in the book of Daniel, they are distinguished from one another. And so look at Daniel chapter 10, starting at verse uh, 16. And we'll read down to verse 21. And behold, one in the likeness of the child of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, by reason of the vision pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is ascribed in the book of the truth. There is none who contends by my side except Michael, your prince. 
And so we see that there is a difference between the Son of Man and Michael. Right? They are distinguished from one another here in our text. And so what we need to see then is that verse 7 of our text develops now Daniel's heavenly imagery of this battle between the Son of Man, who is Christ and Michael, versus the evil angelic forces. We see this drawn out in Daniel chapter 10, verse 13. Look back up to verse 13 for me. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. Let us just recognize one thing. If, if Michael is the great prince, then the prince of the kingdom of Persia is likewise an angelic being. Right? You have to interpret them the same manner. If, if the angel Michael is a prince, then the angel of, of the kingdom of Persia in this verse likewise is angelic, is an angelic being. And so what we see is that both the Son of Man and Michael fight on behalf of Israel here in Daniel 10 in opposition to the evil angelic army who represents the kingdom of Persia and the kingdom of Greece. But now in our text, as we, as we look back now to Revelation chapter 12, what we see is that as Christ conducts this warfare on behalf of, of true Israel on earth, Michael, in close association with our Lord, conducts the same battle against the evil angelic host in the heavenly sphere. Right? That is what we are seeing taking place here. So that what we see is that Christ's victory at the cross that His resurrection and the beginning of His rule is immediately reflected in heaven by the defeat of the devil by Michael the archangel and his army. We see that reflected. Christ's victory on earth starts a chain reaction in heaven which brings about the defeat of Satan and the casting Him down. The heavenly struggle of verse 7 then depicts the beginning of the battle that was revealed by Daniel that will occur in the last days. And just as the woman, right, just as the wilderness, just as the 1260 days are all symbolic and figurative language, so too though, we need to see is this war that's taking place between these two armies. We're not to think that these spiritual beings, these invisible beings, are wielding some sort of physical swords or pistols against one another. It's it's what this war that is arising between these two armies depicts for us. Ultimately, the message is conveying to us is that Satan has met his demise. That is what it is conveying to us here. The verse describes Satan's demise as a result of the cross event. And as a result of the cross event, what happens? Satan has been cast down, we're told. There is no more place for Satan and for his allies in heaven anywhere. That is what we read. Which also means what for us? That what is depicted here in the casting down of Satan is not the first casting down of Satan. It is not the first casting down of Satan with his rebellion in heaven prior to the fall of man. And how do we know that? Well, look at verse 9 with me. 
And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Prior to the fall of man, Satan was not the deceiver of the whole world. Right? He's only the deceiver of the whole world after the fall. And then Satan goes out into the world and begins to do on a worldwide scale what he began to do in the Garden of Eden with just our first parents. And so we see that what's described for us, this casting down, is a result of some other event than that first rebellion of Satan in heaven before the fall of man. And instead, that what we need to see that this throwing down from heaven to earth is, or what it describes for us, is a further curtailment of Satan's power in light of Christ's redemptive work. Right? That is what we see going on. Right? The casting down of Satan from heaven to earth conveys to us the message that Satan's power has been curtailed because of the cross event. And what is that curtailment then that is depicted for us in the casting down of Satan from heaven? We're told what it is in verse 10. Look at verse 10 with me, please. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of Christ have come. For what? For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before the Lord. The accuser of the brothers has been thrown down who accuses the brethren day and night before the Lord. And this work of accusation, Satan has been engaged in for a very long time, hasn't he? We see examples of this in in Job chapter 1, verses 6 and 11. In Job chapter 2, verses 1 to 6, where he accuses Job before the Lord. Let's look at just one example briefly. Let's look at Job chapter 1. And we'll just look at verses 9 to 11. Job chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. This is after Satan presents himself before the Lord. And what do we read in verse 9? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand, touch all that he has, and he will curse you to his face. What is the devil doing here before the Lord? He's bringing accusation against Job, isn't he? He's saying, Job only loves you and only serves you because of what you have given to him. Take what he has away, and he will reject you. He will deny you. What is he ultimately accusing Job of? unfaithfulness. He's saying Job is an unfaithful servant. And in one sense, the devil has a point, doesn't he? As he brings these accusations before the Lord. Because prior to the cross, the law is unfulfilled. Prior to the cross, the law is unfulfilled. And so Satan is able to come before the Lord and to say, well, the wages of sin is death. All have broken the law. So do what you're supposed to do. Punish this lawbreaker, Job. But in our text today, brothers and sisters, we see one of the great 
and sweeping consequences and ramifications of that cross event. And this is what we see, that it banished the devil who was once permitted to bring accusation from ever bringing accusation against God's people again. That's what we see in the casting down of Satan. He has been banished from ever going before the Lord in heaven and bringing accusation against the people of God. Right? Because in Christ's death, the penalty of your sin, of the Old Testament saints, the New Testament saints, has been paid for by Jesus Christ. Right? He was the, the great substitutionary atonement for sin. So that now, no one is able to bring a charge against God's elect. They cannot level any charge, any accusation, for our sin has been once and for all dealt with upon the cross. That is a a sweeping ramification of that cross event. That by the blood of Christ, we've been brought near to our Lord. We stand before the judge and He says, not guilty, for you have been covered in the perfect righteousness of Christ, no longer will I hear any accusation against my people. This, brothers and sisters, is what is depicted for us in the book of Zechariah. Turn there with me, please. Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3, and we'll begin at verse 1. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken away your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. <clears throat> this is a picture of what occurs because of the cross. This is what Christ has accomplished upon the cross as the atonement has been fully completed and Christ has met the law's demands. Right? There is no more charge to prosecute you for before the eyes of the Lord. And so this is what is depicted for us as Satan is expelled from heaven down to earth. This is the same thing Jesus describes would happen in John chapter 12, verses 31 and 32. Look with me there if you'd like. John chapter 12, verses 31 and 32. Here Jesus says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to Myself. Jesus says this casting down is going to be a consequence of His crucifixion and of His resurrection. This is why Paul then can go on to say in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, that Jesus was delivered up for our transgressions 
And He was raised up for our justification, which is why Paul can later go on to say in Romans 8.33, Who then shall bring a charge against God's elect? And because of the cross event, the answer, brothers and sisters, is no one. No one. And so this is the first consequence of the crucifixion that is revealed to us in our text this morning, depicted by the casting down of Satan from heaven unto the earth. But what is the second? What is the second consequence or the second ramification? This leads us to point number two then, which is the inauguration of the kingdom. And we read this in the first half of chapter 10. Look with me there once more, please. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. Right? What this describes for us then is the inauguration of the long-awaited messianic kingdom of our Lord. Right? In the, ex- in the expulsion of the, of the devil and in the ascension of Christ, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of Christ have now come. It's what we're told. Remember, like we said last, or I think two weeks ago maybe, two or three weeks ago, that it's at the completion of Christ's earthly work that He is exalted. Remember, He is, he is then given this name above every name. And He is given all power and authority over all things as a reward for fulfilling that task that He was sent to do. And so what results in His, in his ascension and in Satan's expulsion, and in the inauguration of the kingdom, then, is, is God's power is manifested to the world. We see now Christ's royal reign is established in the hearts of His people because of the inauguration of His kingdom. And likewise, because of the inauguration of His kingdom, right? the authority that Christ now has as He sits at the right hand of the Father, reigning and ruling, is, is revealed and made known to us. But how does this happen? Right? How does this be accomplished? Well, look at Colossians chapter 3. Let us see what Paul says there. Colossians chapter 3 and verses 13 to 15. Excuse me, Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 verses 13 to 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. He triumphed, brothers and sisters, and He is now reigning as King over His kingdom. This is what we recognize every time we pray, Thy kingdom come. Right? He who has a kingdom can be no less than a king. Right? And so Jesus, as King Jesus, who rules and reigns His kingdom now as it has been inaugurated after His death and His resurrection and His ascension. But we need to understand that it's not a kingdom of this world. It's not a a kingdom like the earthly kingdoms of this world. 
Right? When we pray, Thy kingdom come, what we are asking for is that His kingdom of grace come and that His kingdom of glory come. That's one kingdom, but twofold in nature. Right? As Christ inaugurated His kingdom and now reigns with all power and authority, right? He sets up His kingdom of grace in the hearts of sinners everywhere. But we need to understand that all the kingdom of graces is the beginning of the kingdom of glory. And so that's what we're praying for. Not only that His kingdom be established in our hearts, but we're praying that His kingdom come and that His kingdom be consummated. And brothers and sisters, we need to realize that we all start off in this world in the kingdom of darkness. But through the work of Christ, right through the, the cross event, He has transferred us from that kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of Christ. And it's through the inauguration of the kingdom that now Christ reigns in the will and the affections of His people. It is through the inauguration of the kingdom that Christ now has set up His government in your hearts. It is through the inauguration of that kingdom that we now experience the glories of the age to come. Our eyes enlighten, our, our, our hearts renewed. A total metamorphosis of the soul that transpires. And now what? We long for our Lord. We desire to obey our Lord and to worship our Lord. We desire now to practice holiness and to pursue piety and righteousness and justice. What also is a result of the inauguration of the kingdom? We are told this, that because of the inauguration of the kingdom, we have, been con- we have become conquerors of our enemies as well. The chief enemy being the devil. This is what we read in verse 11. Look with me there. And they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even to death. Brothers and sisters, we are only conquerors through Christ. There is no overcoming sin and there is no overcoming the devil apart from a substitutionary sacrifice. And we see that reality drawn out with what we read in our text, that we have become conquerors through what? The blood of the Lamb. What was the Lamb? It was a sacrificial symbol in the Old Testament. But now it's through Christ's blood that He has done what the blood of bulls and goats and lambs could not do. Right? He has actually cleansed our consciences. He has made us clean. Right? By the blood of Christ, by the blood of the Lamb. He has brought about forgiveness of sin. He has satisfied divine justice. He has brought peace with God for all of those who believe. As a result of the inauguration of the kingdom, what we also see is not only do we conquer the devil through the blood of Christ, but we also conquer the devil through the word of our testimony. That's what we read here as well. We conquer the devil through the word of our testimony. This is a a key and important point, brothers and sisters. We need to understand that when the Gospel is preached, when Christ is communicated to sinners, when they hear of Christ's victory and hear of the devil's defeat, the kingdom of the the evil one is is being destroyed. As the Gospel goes forth and the Holy Spirit uses it to renew the souls of sinners, 
Right? We are striking blow after blow to the devil's kingdom. Where we overcome the devil as we proclaim the gospel and, and our Lord and Savior removes people from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Right? In that way, we, we are constantly striking blows and overcoming the evil one. Right? Through the proclamation of the gospel. And the church continues to bear witness to the gospel no matter the cost, even if that means death. That's what we read in verse 11. And they conquered Him by His blood, by the word of their testimony. Why? For they loved not their lives even until death. Antipas, earlier in Revelation chapter 2, is a great example of this, isn't it? That Antipas refused to deny the Lord and say Caesar is Lord. And so what happens? Antipas is struck dead. And so brothers and sisters, likewise, right? we are called to demonstrate our love for the Lord by not loving our earthly lives more than Him, but rather being willing to give up our earthly lives if Christ would call us to it. And so with all boldness, brothers and sisters, we proclaim Christ. For we are the kingdom of God in this earth. And so we are to embrace all manner of suffering, knowing that the kingdom of Christ shall not fail. It shall not fail. And our death, even our death, even if Satan has his way and he strikes us dead, we need to understand that our death is still not a defeat. It's still a conquering of the devil. Because our death is no longer a punishment for sin, but rather our death is a blessing of being in the kingdom of God. And so, brothers and sisters, we ought to live as conquerors in this life. Right? There are so many Christians today who live in fear. There are so many Christians today who are ignorant of the weapon that they've been given to wield on this earth. They live in uncertainty. They live with much worry. They live constantly doubting and questioning their own salvation as they listen to the devil's accusation. And that may describe some of you here today. But let us learn from our text this morning that we are not to listen to the devil's accusations that he brings to our ears. Why? For our God does not listen to the accusations of the devil anymore. And so neither are you, and neither shall I. I remember, brothers and sisters, we have an advocate now when we sin. Right? The mediator, Christ Jesus. So now when the devil brings accusation to your heart, instead of listening to it, we run straight to God through Christ, laying hold to Christ's merits, knowing that because of Christ. Our sins are forgiven. Brothers and sisters, there's nothing that the blood of Christ cannot overcome for the saint. There is no sin that you struggle with that the blood of Christ has not overcome. Your sin of laziness, your sin of self-righteousness, your sin of idolatry, your sin of lustful thoughts. His blood has overcome it all. And yet, the true Christian never presumes upon the grace of God. So we don't, we're not content to go on sitting with our, in our lives saying, well, his, his blood has overcome my sin. But rather, the true Christian recognizes the depravity of his sin 
And daily he goes to the Lord in repentance and in faith and in sorrow and in hatred over his sin. He cries out to the Lord and says, Lord, as the devil tries to make my sin pleasurable to me, take it from me. It caused me to forsake my sin and see its filthiness. Cause me, Lord, to, to forsake all sin, see its bitterness. And yet all the while, as we go before the Lord, we go before Him believing that because of the blood of Christ, because of the cross event, because Christ is King and we are members of His kingdom, that by His grace we can overcome all the sin that we struggle with in this life. By the grace of God. And this, brothers and sisters, is why the the coming of the kingdom produces so much joy in the hearts of the saints. This is why it produces so much joy because Christ's salvation and His power and His authority and His kingdom are here now. And we are blessed so richly by them, aren't we? This is what we read in verse 12 then. Look with me there, please. Therefore rejoice, O heavens and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. This leads us to our third and our final point, which is heavenly celebration and earthly battles. What we see is that God's people rejoice by the fact that Christ has achieved His decisive victory over the devil on the cross. Right? Christ's people celebrate because now He reigns as King over His kingdom. Christ's people celebrate because we know that the devil can no longer bring accusation against us. Right? God's people rejoice exceedingly because the devil's expulsion from heaven means our salvation is secure forever. This is what Jesus says to the 72 in Luke chapter 10. Turn with me there if you'd like. Luke chapter 10. This is the exact reason why Jesus tells those 72 why they should rejoice. He sends them out. They return. And this is what we read in verse 17 of chapter 10. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in Your name. And He said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. This is why we celebrate brothers and sisters. We celebrate because our names are written in heaven and they are secure and they will never be erased. Right? For there is no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right? We celebrate because we know that if God would give him, give us his son and would not spare him, right, for us, that we know that He too will graciously give to His people all things so that we might persevere until the end. We celebrate now, brothers and sisters, because who is there to condemn us? The prosecutor who was saying has been cast out of the courtroom forever. 
Never to stand before the judge. Do you see that? Not only does the prosecutor have no charge to bring, the prosecutor has been disbarred. He has been disbarred. Never even able to come before the judge and to bring accusation against you and I. This is why we celebrate. Why Paul then could say, neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. This is why we gather now every Lord's Day right, to celebrate these things, to exalt the name of our Lord. This is why it's so hard to, to wrap our heads around people who would willingly neglect to attend the worship of our Lord. I'm not talking about people who are incapable because of of health or age. I'm talking about able-bodied people. How could they ever neglect to come and to celebrate and to worship this Lord? Do you not know what He has done? Do you not know what it means for your life? Do you not know what it took to accomplish that feat? This is why, brothers and sisters, we come and we celebrate. Right? We, we come calling out to God, celebrating His name, celebrating the fact that His kingdom has been inaugurated, but calling upon Him to consummate His kingdom. We come celebrating our Lord, recognizing that because of the work of Christ, the second death has no power over us anymore. Right? We ought to celebrate the fact, brothers and sisters, that by the blood of Christ, every Lord's Day, we can come together corporately and we can bring our sin to the cross and know that it is forgiven. What we also see, though, is that although Christ won, and although Satan's ability to accuse the saints has been revoked, And the kingdom has come. Strife on earth continues. Now more than ever, the devil is filled with hostility and hatred towards God's people because he knows his time is short. And so his defeat brings celebration, doesn't it? As we've seen. But it also brings intensified persecution to those on the earth as Satan seeks to devour and destroy God's people. Verse 13 to 17 depicts this for us. And so, that aspect of it, we're going to look at more extensively next week. But then as we walk away this morning, as we bring our message to a close, I want us to walk away thinking about the major turning point of the cross today. Right? Think about that. Let us continue to think about what that has done. And let it, let it be a cause of celebration amongst God's people, knowing that Satan can no longer accuse the people of God. That Christ reigns as King over His kingdom. That by Christ's blood, we have conquered the devil. And so, brothers and sisters, even if Satan tries to harm you today, as he tries to harm the kingdom of God, which is the church on the earth, we know that since God is King, that He will set Himself up against every enemy of His kingdom. And so let us be encouraged then that as the King of Kings, when the time comes and Christ returns, we know that He will cast our ancient foe down one final time into the lake of fire. And out of His, out of his abundant grace, 
He will reward all of His saints, making us a pillar in the temple of God forever. Please bow your heads with me in prayer. Oh, gracious Father, what joy we have as we read Your Word this morning, as we recognize the consequence, the ramifications of the cross, the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we thank You for it. We thank You that by the blood of Christ, the penalty of sin has been removed. And our sin has been dealt with once and for all. And now, as you look upon the people of God, you see the righteousness of Christ. Cause us, Father, to to think about that and to dwell upon that every day as Satan attempts to bring our sin before us and accuse us and tell us that we are not children of the Lord. Help us by the aid of the Spirit whenever that happens to flee to You in the name of Christ, clinging to the merits of Christ, knowing that we have pardon of sin because we have conquered all things through the blood of the Lamb. So, Father, we come before You this morning thanking You, praising You, and praying all these things in Christ's name. Amen.